Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. So Alex, I've got a question for you. Do you like the cold? Do you like the feeling of, of being out in deep cold? I hate the cold. It's so funny, though, because you say that, but then, like, you kind of, you dip your toe in it. Actually, yeah, I, I would say I don't like the cold. Yeah, I don't I don't like the cold, but I would say I, I, I think I'm fine in the cold. I, I don't think I'm any worse than anybody else. You know, I always kind of joke that I'm from suburban California, and, you know, it's like I grew up riding my bike around in, in like, the suburbs. It's like I'm just not a cold person. But uh, but realistically, I think I do as well in the cold as, as anybody else, really. I remember having one uh, one experience in my life. I, I spent six weeks in the UK climbing on the grit in uh, October, November, and it was very cold and very wet. And and we were trying to rock climb, and basically we were just constantly freezing, which you know is fine. It's kind of the nature of climbing there. You want the conditions, like it was all part of the plan. But anyway, I came back to California for December, and I remember for the first time in my life. I was like, I'm the guy that's tough in the cold because I was climbing a jailhouse and everybody else at the sport crag was like all bundled up. And I would just be in my shorts hanging out being like, it's so nice here. It's like so warm in California. And I was like, man, after six weeks of like cold, wet wind and just like heinous conditions in the UK, I was like, man, California feels so balmy. It's like, it, yeah, first time in my life that I was like, I'm that guy that's like wearing shorts and flip flops on in like winter and just loving it, you know, while everybody else is freezing. I was like, oh, it is. It is apparently something that you can learn and sort of adapt to. You actually went on expedition to Antarctica with our guest today. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, like, when you live in that kind of cold day after day, um, you know, for multiple weeks, like, do you ever, do you, do you ever feel warm? Uh, like, or do you just get used to being cold? Like, what's that, what's that like? Yeah, camping in the cold, at least camping in Antarctica, is not quite as grim as it sounds because it is 24 hours of sunlight and your tent becomes a little greenhouse basically Mm -hmm. so if the sun's out it can be quite comfortable when you're zipped inside and you're not exposed to wind or anything like that and then you know we have minus 40 degree sleeping bags so if you're in your sleeping bag in your tent you're normally pretty comfortable and it's pretty nice it's just as soon as you try to go outside that you have to put on all the layers and the boots and zip everything down and put on the sunscreen and cover your face and cover your eyes and you know, it's it's seriously like going from, well, I imagine it's it's what it's like to go out of the uh, International Space Station or something. And you're like, oh, you know, it's pretty cozy when you're inside. But as soon as you want to do anything out of your out of your little, you know, space pod, then then you're going to die instantly unless you have all the right things on. I have to say the, the subjective experience of cold is interesting because you'll often be more cold in, say, Chicago in the spring than you will be in Antarctica. Just because there's a there's a perceived expectation or, you know, you're sort of like, oh, I'm only going from my car to the office. It should be fine. And, you know, but it's like minus 20 with a wind chill or something. But, you know, when you're on an expedition in Antarctica or Alaska, you basically can't go out without all your layers on. And then when you have all your layers on, it's, it's kind of OK. Right. So who are we talking to today? Anna Pfaff is a professional climber who is most known as an alpinist and expedition climber. She's put up first ascents around the world and, and generally thrives in the bigger mountains. Today, we've got a story about being your best and about how that best changes and evolves as we do. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. 
my name is Anna Pfaff and I live in Erie, Colorado. I'm a climber. Sometimes I work as a nurse, but I oftentimes say I'm a retired nurse now. My name is Preeti Wright. I love exploring new places and finding a way to travel through these wild outdoor spots, especially if they have less people. <laughs> I just like getting out there and finding new ways to travel in the mountains. Preeti Wright is a committed climber who basically has structured her life around climbing and expeditions and, and climbs at a high level and adventures at a high level and has put up first ascents in the greater ranges. I don't know, like, a, what, what do you call a really good climber who has a normal job? <laughs> I think badass works. You know, it's like of all the people that, that uh, work in tech for a living, she's probably one of the better climbers an, an elite climbing tech worker. Some people are like never go on an expedition with someone you don't know or something like that. But I find that sometimes that works out pretty well, especially if you if your goals are aligned. Uh, we met at the airport in Anchorage. That was the first time we'd actually met. And we planned all of this remotely and then went to go on this kind of blind climbing date. And I think everything actually went pretty darn smoothly uh, besides um, the disaster that happened once we came back down off the route. Anna and Preeti got dropped off on the Tokositna Glacier, a narrow valley of ice which can be difficult to get a plane into. The guidebook even notes that it's not uncommon for a plane to get stuck in there, maybe once a year. It's the third week of April 2022, and the temperature is around zero Fahrenheit, sometimes a little bit above, sometimes a little bit below. The Harvard route on Mount Huntington is it's like 3,000, probably like maybe 3,500 feet route. It's a big route. And it, it climbs up the, the west face, uh, this really beautiful arete that kind of like divides the west face of the of the mountain. And it's a super classic route. And it has like a long section of kind of moderate ice, that like terrible calf burning angle of ice. We were moving. We weren't moving fast, but we weren't moving slow. We were progressing up the mountain. And then you kind of make your way up to the crux of the route, which is called the Nose. And we bivvied there the first night. So that, that was day one on the mountain. And we bivvied underneath the nose, which is this really beautiful uh, part of the mountain that kind of just like projects out. And there's a super flat bivy underneath. So we, we set up a little tent and slept there. And then and then it has this crazy pitch of like rhyme ice flutings, almost sort of overhanging, but not consolidated. And a lot of people turn around before that part because it's, it's a long way still to get to the summit. We could both tell like we were a little later than we had hoped. Conditions were a little harder being early season and having a little less daylight. And we looked at each other and we said, should we go for the summit? I don't know. Should we do it? Should we not do it? This is a point to decide. <laughs> I think she kind of reminded me that I said, this isn't worth losing any fingers or toes over. And we're both like, okay, but I think we'll go for it. We topped out. Quite late that second day, it was probably about 9 p.m. or something like that. And my feet had gotten really cold kind of without me knowing it, which I also sounds really crazy because it's like, how don't you know your feet get cold? But with that, like I've also had, you know, significant frostbite before on my feet. And when you have previous cases of frostbite, oftentimes your feet lose that sensation or the ability to tell how cold they are. And while we are climbing, 
um, it was pretty cold. It was like negative 20 Fahrenheit and just kind of dealing with all the things that you're dealing with while, while alpine climbing, that kind of like focus that you have. And I didn't realize like exactly how cold my feet were. When we got down to base camp, she changed her socks and changed her, took her boots off and didn't see anything. I think probably there were still frozen, but we didn't know. And right away, I could tell that my feet were like discolored. They had that kind of like whitish color to them. And I've had that before on my feet and, you know, they really just need to like get warmed up and rehydrate yourself and kind of just reverse all the things that you put yourself through on the mountain. And usually they, they warm up and, and everything's fine. And, but we kind of wrote it off as, you know, the normal kind of soreness that you have after a big day. And she didn't ever say that she had cold feet or that anything hurt. And we didn't really know that anything was wrong. And I certainly didn't know anything was wrong until waking up like, a day after we had been at base camp and she said, Oh no, there's something wrong with my feet. When I woke up the next morning, I, you know, pulled off my down booties or whatever and looked at my feet and they were very discolored and had huge blisters on them. And I knew right away that we needed to get out. Through the inreach, we uh, notified Telkeetna Air and Talk to Paul and... Paul Roderick is a legend in the Alaska bush plane world. He's a director of operations of Talkeetna Air Taxi, which shuffles climbers in and out of the Alaska range. He tried to fly in to pick me up, but because it was so shrouded in with clouds and all that, he couldn't land. It was desperate. We wanted to get up. We knew waiting was the worst possible option, but we all had to kind of manage our expectations to not just go a little crazy. So we're trying to stay as positive as possible. Obviously, everyone is trying to fly in, but when you see that there's clouds and there's no visibility, you can't have a plane land in that. So subsequently, we ended up spending another two days out on the glacier, and my feet just progressively got worse. I I couldn't get out because it was like a full-on storm. And on the Tokusina Glacier, it's super tight, like the mountains are really close in. So for them to land the plane, they have to have really good visibility. And um, I could hear him flying over, but he just, he couldn't land. So the timer is ticking. We have to get her somewhere that we can deal with this because there's only a short window of getting frostbite that you have something you can actually do. By the time I was able to get out and get to the hospital in Anchorage, there wasn't really anything that they could do. Alex, have you ever had a cold injury, like frostbite? No, I've, I've been in extreme cold, but I've never had to deal with any kind of cold injuries or, or like real extreme cold. You know, I've been to Antarctica twice and been to Alaska a bit and, and definitely have felt very cold before, but have never had to deal with actual cold injuries. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever been really worried for the safety of my hands or feet. I mean, I've had periods where they're really, really cold, but I don't think I've ever been too worried about them coming back. I mean, you know, a lot of the time when you get to a bivy or you get into your sleeping bag, my feet will be totally numb, but I just kind of know that when I fall asleep, uh, you know, I'll warm up in my bag, like, mm-hmm. and I will be fine. Uh, you know, like oftentimes I basically just have to go to sleep to like let some things warm back up. So what's happening there is that you've been out, right, in, in deep cold, 
and the brain begins to send less blood to the extremities in order to protect our core with all the internal organs, right? Your feet get cold or maybe your hands stop working as well. Usually we are able to get out of the cold before it's an issue. We rehydrate and we eat some food and things turn around really quickly. But if you can't get out of the cold, the tissue in the extremities loses oxygen and nutrients. Your skin color turns paler than normal, but that can be harder to tell depending on your skin color. The skin will get hard or waxy. Ice crystals can begin to form in the cells and the blood vessels, and it can do real damage at that stage, which is why once you've had a cold injury in the past, you are more susceptible to another one because those tissues are already damaged. So these ice crystals, they also make it more difficult for blood and nutrients to get there, and the extended lack of oxygen means those cells die. And when the infected area begins to warm, there is wild swelling and blisters. Usually at that stage, the tissue begins to turn black and hard, and in some extreme cases, doctors have to amputate the affected area so that the infection doesn't spread. I think the takeaway from Anna's experience is that if you've had any kind of previous cold exposure, previous cold injuries, that you should be much more careful about future exposure to the cold because you're just much more susceptible to injury. And that's mm-hmm. something that I was not really aware of before talking to Anna. And, and it totally makes sense. I'm like, oh, that, you know, I get that. And yet somehow I just had never really heard it. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. You posted some pictures, though, of of your feet all black and, and, and purple and blistered. And surely when you saw them looking like that, I mean, like basically at what point did they look that bad? Because you must have known that terrible things had happened to your toes at that point. Because anyone that sees the picture is like, oh my God, that is so bad. Yeah. I still was like, um, that's not going to happen. I know that sounds like yeah, denial. It's, it still feels like it's, well, it's, it's still part of you, I guess. Yeah. And you're like, you know what? I will heal. You're like, they'll be fine. Totally. I guess like what had happened was I, I went, I immediately went into like, I'm like, my toes are going to be okay. So I ended up doing, I did like 40 treatments of hyperbaric oxygen, which is like, they put you into this tube and they increase the atmospheric pressure 
and then they give you hundred percent oxygen. And what it does is it'll, it bypasses your red blood cells and can like get oxygen into your tissues without having to rely on your red blood cells. And a lot of people use it for heal for like wound healing. There's a lot of research for it helping with like autism and these problems that people are having with their brain, with their body. There's just all this kind of like out of the box research that's happening with the hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And there's a small bit of research that has proven that it has helped with frostbite. So I was doing that. And at first, like within the first, probably like 10 treatments, like they started to look better. And I was like, holy shit, this is working. You know, like this is going to work. Like things are going to be okay. And then there was like this drastic, it went from like, it's better to like black. Like, yeah, it was, yeah, they were pretty, they got really bad. But I think I like had that hope as humans, most humans, like we want to get better, right? Like we want to like heal ourselves. And I saw like, I don't know, three or four different surgeons and three of them, four, well, four of them were like, you need to get your toes taken off. And I'd be like, fuck you. Like, fuck you. That's not happening. <laughs> fuck off. Like, I'm not, you're not cutting off my toes. Right. I've never been like this really like mean person. <laughs> and I, my mom, my poor mother was with me. And I like, I said this, like, I don't know wherever I was. And I was like, get the fuck out of my room. You're not cutting my toes off. Cause I just felt, like wanted this information from them that it, it's like, I only wanted to hear that they would get better or don't talk to me at all kind of thing, which is not my personality. And then I saw this one surgeon, I was, I was trying to do these dressing changes or whatever. And I was seeing this surgeon and it was this military surgeon. And he like, he just like had the right words for me at the time. He knew I was a nurse. So he was like, if you saw this on someone else, like if you walked into your patient's room right now and their feet were black, you know what that means. And like, I had to like remove myself from my body and be like, this is what it is. And he was trying, he was like, you have to do this because if you don't, like it's going to get worse and it can like get into your foot and we'll have to take more, like an infection can get into more of your foot and we'll have to take more of your foot off. And that just like resonated with me where I was just like, get them the fuck off, like take them off. Like, can we do it tomorrow? Cause I knew he was right. And I didn't want to risk having to like lose more of my foot. Was that the moment where you realized that you were going to have to lose some toes? Yeah, that, that was the moment was with, with this military surgeon at the, the frostbite center in, uh, in Denver. Yeah. Up to then I was like fully, that literally was like probably like May 20th. I just got like obsessive with like doing the hyperbaric oxygen. Like my diet was like, I just like obsessed on things that I could control. I was taking all these supplements. But that's, that's the classic thing though, where you're like, I'm taking my B12 supplements. I'm sure it'll get better. And you have this, this dead rotting wound on the ends of your feet. You're like, oh, it's weird that my B12 supplements didn't, didn't help. <laughs> I was like, maybe you're if like, I take more vitamin C, like everything will be fine. It was like, whatever I could, I'm like, I should drink, you know, five liters of water a day instead of three or like, just this, like, I don't That's what I could control. Right. So that's what I did. May 25th was my first surgery and they took off all of my toes on my right foot. I have like a quarter, a quarter of a baby toe. It's like 
yeah, it's kind of, it's like a, a little toe. And then I was still into like saving my toe and my left foot, my big toe. I, w- I really wanted to keep one big toe because your big toe like does so much, right? Like it's just so important. And the thought of losing two of them was just like so daunting to me. I like, couldn't deal with it. And it's like the embodiment of like what life has one direction forward. And she's just always continuing with style and grace. And like, she's always been my hero. And I would say if anything, she's even more of my hero now, because if this happened to me, there's not an ounce of her grace that I would be able to have. She's just incredible. My left big toe was, it was like, it would get better. And then it was like getting worse. And then it got like, like the ones on my right foot were super gnarly. They were like black and they were like oozing and like drippy. They looked so gnarly. They're disgusting. And then the big one on my left foot was more like dry. And it just seemed like it had like, like it was like dead skin. And I had this like dream, I guess, that like all the dead skin would fall off. And there'd be like this perfect normal toe with pink nail polish underneath, right? Like just exactly how I went in. And um, so I kept it and I kept trying to save it and do everything I could for it. It also wasn't as big of a risk of infection as my right toe. So they were like, okay, you can, you can wait that one out and see how it goes. And then it didn't, it just wasn't getting any better and it started getting worse. So that one, it's like half, it's kind of like, it's like that. So I do have a, they wanted to take the whole thing and I said, no. So I have half of it, which I think, I think does help quite a bit, especially with climbing that ability to like toe in, it's kind of like all your big toe in a way. I still have the ability to do that on my left foot. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have kept half of it. It's like, a, a, I guess a little, it's like a third of it. So what does recovery look like? I did a lot of PT. I actually saw Tommy a few times at PT. We, we had the same PT in Boulder. And I, I like saw him walking out. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm at the right time. We actually had the same surgeon at the Stedman Clinic. So I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm like on the right path. <laughs> um, and we'd be like, I'm like, oh shit. We just see each other and be like, oh gosh, but we're, we're getting better. At first I, I, I couldn't walk, um, which was really demoralizing is it's really was that because of ugh. of pain or being physically incapable or what uh you know like what exactly stops you from walking? it was balance so like i didn't um my brain like of course like i had to do the you know full like six weeks off of like non-weight bearing so i was i was just like crawl i did a lot of like crawling around on the floor but last summer was just like a just crawling and like scooting around on the floor. And then when I could put weight onto, especially my right foot, the one that lost all the toes, I would just immediately fall over. Cause I didn't, my brain didn't know how your toes like are, when you think about walking, it's like your toes spread and you like walk. Right. And when you lose that and everything's just like tight and I hadn't had the ability to like move my foot yet. Now I can move um, like the inside of my foot that can creates balance, but my brain didn't know how to do that. And I could feel it was the wildest thing. Cause I could feel my brain, like looking for my big toe specifically on my right foot. And because it wasn't there, it would just like freak out and I would fall over. So a lot of just like retraining that neuromuscular connection and like proprioception, which is like where your body part is in, in your, you know, like in space, 
because when you lose it, you don't, your brain like still thinks that your body part is there that you've lost. It hasn't created that disconnect yet. So a lot of like, I basically like relearned how to walk on the treadmill was super helpful because you can hang on, you know, it's like training wheels for walking. (laughs) So like you have it on like one mile per hour, like hang on and just like, kind of like lower your body weight onto it. And then, um, you know, walking, like having trekking poles and then just a lot of balance exercises, like the balance board. Um, there's something called the MOBO board, which is like a round board that like helps with just moving, just like to regain all the neuromuscular connections with your body. But it was a process for sure. But now I, like I was saying, I feel like my balance might even be better than it was before. Just spent so much time. <laughs> were, were there any particular breakthrough days or moments that you remember? I mean, how, you know, it's a super long, slow process to to relearn how to walk, but were there any moments from it that stood out to you? Oh yeah. I mean, like I remember like when I actually like, you know, could walk, that was awesome. Like without falling over. Um, I was at the, the, I did a lot of my, um, a lot of my PT at the the climbing gym actually in, in, uh, Louisville and, and up near Boulder at the spot. And like, I would go to PT and then a lot of it was just like that time that you spend in the, in the gym after Cause it's like a PT session, you know, you get like an hour and they kind of like teach you what to do. And then it's kind of up to you to like go and do that on your own. I feel like that's the way that you get better. Um, yeah, that, that was awesome. And then just being able to like stand on one foot, like stand on that foot was huge. Like just to like, you know, be able to balance on my right foot without falling over. Were there any moments it was like the first time you walked down the street in Boulder again or something, or, you know, walked around in your right, or even like walked in the snow again or something, you know, I mean, what were some of the, the major milestones for you? The biggest milestone that I remember was like when I went back to climbing again, like when I went, um, in the gym, just like I, I couldn't obviously like fit my feet into climbing shoes. So I was just wearing like approach shoes. And just, I remember that. I remember just like being at the top as I'm like a five, six or something. And just like, I just remember like literally being at the top of it and just like crying. Cause I was like, oh man, like this is gonna, it's gonna be like, shit's gonna be okay. You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be okay. Like the body's adaptable. Um, like it, it just went from like, so daunting, you know, I was like, okay, I have my, my career as an athlete, right. That's one thing. And then I have my career as a nurse. That's another thing. And both of them require you to use your feet intensively. I was like that, like what, it's just like, there are so many things that I was just like, what am I going to do? You know what I mean? Like, how's, what is my future going to look like? Not only as an athlete, but just like my life in general, if I, and it's also crazy when you go from like being on a big mountain and like all the training you do before it. And then all of a sudden you come out and you're like in a wheelchair, but there's no time to think about it. It just happens so quickly. Right. It's just kind of like, uh, so. Yeah. Where, where did, where did you draw the strength or the motivation to, to see you through recovery, to see you through the whole process? I mean, there's so much uncertainty. And like you said, with, you know, you being a professional climber and a nurse and both of which requiring your feet, like how did you manage to, you know, like, yeah. How did, how did you deal? I think it was just like, this is like, for me, that, that was the only, the only option was like, just figure out how to do things again. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't even a question of like not figuring that out. It's kind of like when I was talking about like saving my toes, there was no question. Like 
nobody was going to cut off my toes. Like that wasn't going to happen. And I think like, and then it did. Right. And then it was like, there was no option to like not get back into walking and running and climbing. And I think having like the support system that I did too, like with my partner, Andreas, who, you know, it's a huge, he's like, this is going to happen. You're going to do this. And like giving me like both that like supportive love, but then also like the tough love I think is important in recovery too. Of someone just telling you to like, literally like you need to do this and you, you know, like, pushing you when you can't push yourself kind of thing, I think is, is really important. You mean like actually doing the PT, that kind of thing, like doing the hours of recovery Doing work. the PT and then just doing like, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of crying. I'm not going to lie. There was like a lot of, I yeah. mean, like a lot of crying, I can imagine. right? Like a lot of crying on the bathroom floor and a lot of like waking up in the middle of the night crying and like, that's okay. Right. Like, it's like, okay to feel your feelings, but also like, it's nice to have someone to be like, okay, but now we're going to do, now you're going to go do that. Right. Like now you're going to like get up and you're going to like move forward. And I think that's like a really important contribution that I am very grateful to have like that support system. And then my, my PT in, in Boulder as well. is very like, just first day when I walked in I'm just like a mess. And he's like, not only are you going to walk, but you're going to run. And I'm like, I can't even like freaking stand up right now you know so it's like just having the people believe in you too i think it's important to help you believe in yourself we'll be back with more after the break element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar artificial colors or other dodgy ingredients it tastes great and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt dot com slash climbing gold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code climbing gold. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Yeah, and so how far have you come in this last year of recovery? I mean, like, how, how do you feel right now? Um, I feel good. So I, I, uh, yeah, I just I actually just came back from Baffin Island last oh, week. Yeah, wrong time of year. What it was the cold fuck to drop your favorite f bomb. Like, why? I know, I know. I went there. Uh, it was a really. Have you been to Baffin? Have you been there? No, oh, no. I went cold. to Greenland last summer, yeah. but I've never been to Baffin. Yeah. So. Um, I took a, it was a a project that I did with, with National Geographic. And we took a group of veterans who have pretty significant PTSD in that from being in the military. And we took them skiing to the base of Mount Thor. So, and with this project of like how nature can help with healing and help with trauma and being outside. And um, it's a, you know, a group of people who, who haven't, they haven't like experienced the mountains and been in the mountains. So it was super cool to like, I was their expedition leader and 
you know, just kind of share with them what I know about expeditions and we saw the Northern lights and made it to the, to the base of Mount Thor. We were, we were Nordic skiing. So it wasn't anything with like climbing or even downhill skiing, which is mm-hmm. kind of like flap skiing. And, um, it was, it, you know, and for me, it was like my own journey that, and it was a, a great group of people to be sharing it with too. Um, cause they've had their own trauma in, in a different way, very different way than, than what I just experienced. And, but like my reintroduction into the mountains, right. Of like, okay, this is possible. And it was cold. It was like negative 30 and wind chill and all that, but it was also like well-supported and I felt comfortable being there. And if at any time I needed to get out, I was able to get out and everything went well. Just so, yeah, it was awesome to be back in a place that I love and be in the mountains and, and share that with others. And yeah, I've been back climbing. I, I climbed a V4 the other day on the tension board. It's pretty psyched about that. That's pretty, was, that's pretty legit. Right? Actually. I, you know, it's, I was hanging on really freaking tight. Like I was squeezing real hard. Yeah. But... <laughs> though actually, to be fair, on the on the tension board, you can barely use your feet anyway. So yeah, there it's you like, go. It's not, yeah. it doesn't really speak to your recovery. Yeah. It just means that your fingers and arms have gotten really, really strong, strong while you've been doing rehab. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So I I mean I'm I'm excited to like get just like see what climbing like rock climbing in general, see what that's like now. Um this winter I've been back ice climbing and doing a, a fair, like a, a fair bit of mixed climbing. And I think ice climbing overall is uh, easier because you don't, it's just kind of like your feet are, it's your, your boots are stiff, mm-hmm. your crampons kind of like, if you know how to kick and swing, you know how to ice climb. Like for me, ice climbing, I don't want to say that it's easy. I don't want to be that person, but it's not as um, rock climbing for me has always been significantly harder than, than ice climbing. Yeah, I, th- I think it's fair to say that ice climbing is much less subtle than rock climbing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, uh, yeah, it's just very straightforward. Yeah, totally. It's yeah, more, more like carpentry or something. Totally. Yeah, it's like kind of just like blue collar labor. Yeah, so I'm I'm really excited for you know the spring and and see what I climbed outside once. I wasn't as healed and hadn't been doing as much PT as I have now. So. Now I feel like everything's like healed up. I just need to like relearn how to use my feet. We'll see. I'm going to go, I'm actually going to go to Indian Creek this weekend and see what they feel like in cracks. Hmm. I feel like hand cracks will be okay, but you know, like who knows? Yeah. I've, I've seen you use the, the quote, our best is always changing. What does that mean to you? I heard that quote and it, it really resonated with me because like, I didn't know what that meant before. Cause it was like your best, like you should always be trying your best. And like, I'm this human and my best is here and I should be trying, you know, and not only our best, but like better than your best. And like, when I was going through this injury, like literally some days, like my best was like to like stand up or like put on a shoe or like make it through the day without crying 20 times or like, I'd be like, you know, it was like so bad. I'd be like checking out at the grocery store and the clerk's like, how was your day? And I'm just like, "Ah," you know, like crying. And like, so it just, our best is always changing, like either with injury or as we move through life, like even as we get older, you know, like maybe, you know, I'll be 42, 41, shouldn't make myself older. I'm 41 now, but like maybe my best now, even without this injury, wasn't the same as when I was like 25. You know what I mean? It's like, it's always evolving with us and what we have going on and how we interact with fear and and just, 
you know, the physicality of it all and our mental well-being, it's just, it's always changing. And I think that it's just important to always try your best, whatever that looks like. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I feel like that's a good saying, even if you're not going through any, any tough times, but just with basic training and things like that, it's like not every day is your best day. You just always have to show up the best that you can and, and do what you can and try. Totally. I mean, it definitely applies for aging where you're like, ah, is my best today going to be the same as my best was 10 or 15 years ago? You're like, hopefully, but, but maybe not. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and it certainly won't continue to be for too much longer. <laughs> it's like my, yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's like my best will probably start declining in the, in the near future. Yeah, totally. But, and I, that's just something that's like inevitable, right? It's just like, you just got to try whatever, just try hard. And that sometimes that's not the same as it, as it was, or doesn't look the same for everyone or doesn't look the same every day, you know? Thanks, Anna, for sharing your story. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced and edited by Marco Seiler-Gonzalez and me, Fitz Cajal, with additional editing by Evan Phillips, who also provided music and mixed and mastered today's show. Additional music from Brennan O'Connell and Joya. Tracks are courtesy of Track Club or The Artists. Additional production help from Lauren Delaney Miller. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for ArcStar Sports, and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Call for Duct Tape Than Beer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>